In this church, we're on a journey of discovery. I hope you've joined me on it. More literally, it's a journey of rediscovery. As I interact with my many friends who are not yet Christians, they challenge me, they encourage me, and I learn a great deal from them. I also know at first hand some of the questions they're asking about Jesus. So we've been looking at how we as believers who know him, who love him, and I guess are fairly sure and affirmed in our faith, how we can go back and look again at certain things to encourage us to be all the more steadfast and real in our relationship with Jesus. We've looked at who Jesus is under a number of headings. Behold the man. We also went on to see how that Jesus claimed to be Messiah, the Son of God. Today we're going to look at his divinity. To come to understand and freshly grasp the fact that Jesus is God. Now I have a take-home message for you and that's featured on the notes that we give to the cell leaders. And this is the impact that I would like you to have from today's message. That you will walk away from this today all the more convinced and assured than ever before that Jesus is God and therefore is worthy to be worshipped and carries absolute authority and therefore must be obeyed. We're going to turn to the scripture, John chapter 8, verses 48 and onwards. In this passage, we come in at the middle of a raging controversy. Now, the claims of Jesus being God create similar controversies today. And Jesus is having an interaction, an exchange with the religious leaders of his day, and he's just finished off by saying, you know, the reason you don't listen to me is that you are not of God. I mean, that's a lead balloon statement, isn't it? And of course, the Jewish leaders retaliate, and this is what they pick up and say. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? One of the worst insults to a Jew. You are a Samaritan and have a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Why do you make your, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar, like you. 
but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In the 1980s, there was a rather sick but somewhat funny political joke going around. And they were pitting world leaders against one another. And it was in the era of a person who was the prime minister of our nation. I'll keep her name out of it just to be respectful today. But the story goes like this. The president of the United States of America died and the president of Russia died and the prime minister of Great Britain died. They all stood before God in heaven and the president of the United States of America noticed there was an empty seat next to the right hand of God. So he took it. And the president of Russia noticed there was an empty seat on the left-hand side of God, and so he took it. The third person here noticed that somebody was sitting in the middle seat, and the prime minister of Britain said, God, I believe you're sitting in my chair. (laughs) All right, forgive the rather poor taste of that, but it does show that we immediately identify people who are throwing their weight around, who are being a bit too dominant, who are claiming too much for themselves. And behind that criticism, when we say, who do you think you are, God? We know what God is like. We confess that we know God has supreme authority, God has supreme control, God has supreme power, and is deserving of the highest place. But when Jesus says... I am God, what do we make of it? Who do you say you are? Who do you think you are? Well, Jesus answered that question right on. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that phrase, I am, goes right back to the revelation of the divine name, Yahweh, that was given to Moses. Here is Jesus clearly stating that he is none other than God himself. Extraordinary statement. No wonder some of the reactions, and they're pretty real, come from the Jewish leaders. Who do you think you are? You are claiming to be God? You are claiming the divine name? That is blasphemy. You you have a demon, you're crazy, you're immoral. Uh, how How can you do that? And yet, today we're going to see that Jesus not only claimed to be God, but that he proved it in the way that he lived and what he said, and particularly when he was raised again from the dead. So we begin with the divine name itself, Yahweh. This is the name Lord, which is used only of God. So when Jesus says, I am, he is very clearly claiming to be that one being, that creator God, the God of Old Testament revelation, of course, it's the same in the New Testament, So it's not that he's claiming to be an emanation of God or some kind of expression of God or a a servant of God or a tool in the hand of God. He is claiming to be God himself. Now, for many of us, I'm sure we're already convinced 
but I think we need to refresh ourselves in the reality of it, but if you're already convinced, maybe you haven't thought about what are the consequences if it is not true? What's at stake here? Why, of course, if it is true, then we are right to worship Jesus, as we have been doing this morning. We are right. We're not crazy. We're not blasphemous. We're not just going by Christian tradition. We are worshipping the one who is ultimate reality. Also, if Jesus is God, then he carries absolute authority. So that when he speaks, it's not just his opinion or some theological choice amongst many. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as the Lord of the universe, and therefore our only response is to bow in adoration, worship, and obedience. Beyond that, if Jesus is God, then we are right to want to get to know him. Because God reveals himself in order that we might get to know him. And of course, the whole of our salvation rests on this. If there's no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus, then it is right for us as Christians to confess his name and put our trust in him for our eternal salvation. However, when we ask the question, is Jesus God, we have to pause for a moment and examine exactly what that question means we'll clear away a lot of confusion if we do this for ourselves. And just also when people are discussing with you whether you believe that Jesus is God and presenting their respective arguments, you need to be sure what they mean when they say, is Jesus God? We are talking about the God of the Bible. That's the first thing. Is Jesus God? Are we saying that Jesus is the God of the Bible, the one true personal God who is eternal, undivided in being, only one God, not split up into fractions, only one God, perfect in righteousness, perfect in justice and holiness, full of love, perfect in love, and unlimited in his being. That's what we mean when we say, is Jesus God? However, we also know that when we talk about God, we don't talk about uh, one being, and one person, we talk about one being who eternally exists in three persons. A lot of people find that confusing, but let me bring it right down into manageable terms for us today. I am a human being, and I am a person. You don't doubt that, you don't doubt that about yourself. One being, one person. But God is not limited like we are. We can only be one being and one person. God can be one being, but three persons. God the Father, fully God. God the Son, fully God. God the Holy Spirit, fully God. So when we say, is Jesus God, what we are saying is that did the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, not God the Father, God the Son, not God the Holy Spirit, did God the Son become the historical person whom we know as Jesus of Nazareth, God manifested in the flesh. In John's Gospel it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it was the Word that became flesh, the Word that was God that became flesh. So the question that we're really asking today is, is the man Jesus also God the Son? Is he both God and man, two natures in one person? 
And when we think like that, we avoid a lot of confusion. For example, if somebody says, how could God be changed into a man? How could God become a man? Well, he didn't. He didn't get changed into a man and as if he committed suicide, divine suicide, to come into this world. No, no, no. What it means is Jesus took upon himself an additional human nature alongside his divine nature. So God did not become man and cease to be God. This is a very common one. People ask, well, if you say Jesus is God, how can God be hungry? How can God be thirsty? How can God pray? Is God praying to Jesus, praying, talking to himself? How can God die? How can God be weak? No, no, it's, it's impossible. Well, we're not saying that when Jesus died on the cross, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit ceased to exist and died. No, no, no. We're talking about God manifested in the flesh. And those things about being hungry and so on refer to Jesus in his humanity. And when we talk about Jesus praying to God, that was not so unusual because God the Son and God the Father have been holding conversations for all eternity, long before you and I were ever here. And so the Holy Spirit is involved in that beautiful relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus clearly left aside voluntarily some of the great manifestations of his great attributes. For example, his outward glory. He laid that aside. He didn't come. Maybe just once did he allow the glory of his divinity to shine through his humanity on the Mount of Transfiguration so that they're able to say, we beheld his glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That was just for a handful of people so they could have testimony to share later on. Most of the time, you wouldn't have picked Jesus out from anybody else on the planet, really, by his appearance. Also, if we think about God being the one who is everywhere present, clearly, when Jesus was incarnate on this earth, you would have to go to him. He was located at one spot. But God is everywhere. So, what we understand is Jesus laid aside some of the manifestations of his divinity in order, in his humility, to be our saviour here on this earth. And we know that this glory that Jesus had as being God was something he felt very keenly about. Do you remember when Jesus prayed just before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17? You know, we call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in verse 5 of John 17, this is part of Jesus' prayer. He's speaking to the Father and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So it's very clear Jesus knew that he was not just an ordinary man. He knew that he was God manifested in the flesh. And when we approach this in the way I'm describing, it helps us understand such statements as Jesus said once, uh, the Father is greater than me. This was not a subordination or an inferiority, but it was true sonship recognizing the priority of God the Father who is the source of all things. This is God the Son responding to the initiator, to the originator. 
the one who is the executive to effect the will of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the one who acts in accordance with the divine will to bring it all about upon the earth. And so, when we clear up those questions, we avoid some further confusion down the line. Another thing I hear is that people say, no, 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 the, the, the disciples never believed that Jesus was God. They just recognized him to be a prophet and messiah, but they didn't believe he was God. This was a, an invention of the early church. Have you heard about that? Popular culture presents it and such things, the Da Vinci Code, the Passover plot, many, many kinds of people, uh, ordinary people, will give you these arguments. Therefore, I'm not ashamed today to bring them to you as we worship God and believe him to be God. You need to know how to answer folk. Now, listen. It is very clear that the New Testament itself teaches that Jesus is God. We've just read one of the slam-dunk passages that describe it. There are many, many more. No, no, no. This wasn't invented by the early church. And what's more, the New Testament itself was right close to the facts. When we look at how we date the New Testament, most scholars will say that the New Testament was fully complete by AD 90. Some go as far as early part of the second century. But there was a radical scholar who shook things up a number of years ago. His name was Bishop John Robinson. And he argued very passionately for an early date of the New Testament. And he wasn't a Pentecostal. He wasn't even an evangelical. Just on the basis of historical facts, he said it is absolutely obvious that the whole of the New Testament was written before AD 70 which means that the Gospels are pushed right back, right back to the very early days when people were able to give an, a factual account of what took place and record that factually and accurately. So the question today is, does Jesus claim to be God? We're going to the New Testament. Does he really claim to be God in all the ways that I've described? And then the second question is, if he claimed it, how can we know whether it's true or not? How can we know that it is true? Well, there are just three things I want to say about that. There's much, much more to be said. It's a very complicated topic, and I encourage you to pick it up and learn it and to, to go for it. But before we do that, I, I, I want to show you how important it is to be right about who you worship, because there's a lot of confusing things out there. A Reuters news agency in June 2012 carried a story of Wolfgang von Schwarzenfeld. That's German, in case you didn't recognize it. And he's a famous sculptor, a sculptor, and uh, he visited Venezuela, and the Venezuelan people made a gift to him of a very beautiful stone. And he took the stone back and made, as you see, a sculpture placed in a Berlin park. And it was all about promoting international relations, world peace. There was a lot of significance in it. But it created such a storm because a certain Venezuelan tribe began to throw their hands up in horror and said, you have stolen our sacred stone. This is our grandmother. Let it sink in. I'm glad you're not laughing because I'm not trying to say it for humor. And anyway, reading the reports, there's a little bit of discrepancy as to whether 
uh, actually was true, whether this tribe was not actually just giving some kind of publicity stunt. But however, I want, I want you to see here. There is no limit to what we'll worship if we forget the true and the living God. God is our rock, and that is an analogy. We say we can trust God, we can have confidence in God, we have, we, we have confidence in the God, the rock, not the rock who is God. This is an extreme example of how important it is for us to remember, to be clear and correct about who we worship. Is Jesus God? Did he claim it? Well, yes, he did. We've read it already. Before Abraham was, I am. But there are many other passages and points I give it to you very briefly. When Jesus claimed to be Messiah, it is right that many people wouldn't have understood that, mean, that to mean a claim to be God. Messiah was a prophetic figure, a deliverer, and in the mind of popular Judaism of the day, they were looking for a political ruler who would bring a revolution and set up an independent kingdom. Entirely human in its um, manifestation, of course, divine in that God was going to be behind it. It was not a claim to be God in their understanding. So when Simon Peter made this confession, when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, most probably when he said it, he was just thinking of that as a messianic title. Son of God was a messianic title. But by the time the Gospels are written, they realized that Messiah was not just Son of God, but God the Son. Because Jesus helped them go back to the Old Testament messianic prophecies to see that those prophecies were prophesying about somebody coming who was going to be more than a man. Yes, a man. Yes, a prophet. But much, much more than that, that it was God at work in the person of Jesus Christ. Another way which we see Jesus very clearly accepted uh, that he was God was when he received worship. We received worship. There's a passage in the Bible where an angel appears and, 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 and the Apostle John falls down as if to worship and the angel said, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm a created being. You, don't, you only worship God. So if an angel rightly would not accept worship, how could Jesus, the man, accept worship unless he believed he was also God? When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he didn't say, ha, 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 I thought you were a good Jew. You can't do that. That's blasphemy. Don't say that. No, he didn't. He accepted it. Also, Jesus instructed his disciples to pray in his name. That's an extraordinary claim to divinity. You don't pray in the name of something that is less than God. You pray in the name of God. And so when Jesus says, ask in my name, and the Father will give it to you, he was saying he was on an equality with the Father. He pray, people praying in his name recognizes him as God. Another occasion, it's implied in our passage here, that Jesus said, you ought to honor me just as you honor the Father, claiming to be equal to God. So, let's settle it. Jesus really did claim to be God. But is his claim justified? Did he prove it? Did he demonstrate it? How can we know that Jesus wasn't mistaken? Well, we go to have a look 
at how his claim was miraculously confirmed. And there are three miracles that I want to talk about. First of all, the miracle of fulfilled prophecy, number one. Secondly, the miracle of Jesus' life, what he said, his sinlessness, and the things he did. And finally, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Remember, Jesus not only prophesied that he would arise from the dead, but the New Testament teaches that Jesus accomplished his own resurrection. Clearly, the resurrection points to the fact that Jesus is God. Old Testament prophecies. I read online that there are people claiming as much as 353 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' life. When you look at some of them, some of them are Old Testament illusions, and uh, not illusions, but allusions. Uh, but there are a whole class of very clear predictive prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, showing that he is everything the Old Testament predicted about a divine Messiah. He will be of the tribe of Judah, of the line of Jesse. His birthplace will be Bethlehem. Hardly dare mention that because we're going to Bethlehem many, many times before December the 26th in a month's time. Micah 5, 2, that prophecy is fulfilled. Born of a virgin. He'll have a ministry of, mirac of, the, of miracles. He will minister in Galilee. Remember Isaiah 9, the people are sat in darkness, seen a great light in the, in the region of the Gentiles in Galilee. That was an extraordinary revelation in the time of Jesus. Remember they said, a prophet, you think he's a prophet, you think he's special. Can anything good come from Nazareth in Galilee? Does a prophet arise in Galilee? So they were even confused about it, but Jesus took them back to their own scriptures to say, yes, yes, this one is bringing the light of God to the Gentile nations. It's prophesied he'll cleanse the temple. Also prophesied he would be rejected by the Jewish people of that generation. All the early disciples were Jews. This is an anti-Semitic uh, comment. This is the religious, the Jewish religious leaders at the time were so off beam they didn't even recognize their own Messiah. But it's prophesied that he'd be rejected, prophesied that he would suffer and die a humiliating death. And even that date, the very date, the very time of Messiah's death is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, describing it as 483 years after a certain event that took place in 444 BC. When you do the calculation, that brings us right up to the time where we can historically approximate the death of Jesus. He will be pierced. Now that's an extraordinary scripture from the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. He will be pierced. You know, the scripture says, they will look on me whom they pierced. Who is the me speaking? Why, it is God himself, Yahweh himself saying, you're going to pierce me and they're going to see and look upon me whom they pierced. This is God speaking, fulfilled in the God-man, Messiah, Jesus. Other things. He'll be forsaken by his disciples, buried in a rich man's tomb, uh, and uh, many other things, die with thieves. All of this is predicted there in the Old Testament. And when you put it all together, the 
the odds against this being just a coincidence are way beyond normal, rational odds. So clearly, so clearly, this is pointing to the fact, proving the fact, that Jesus is God. But there's more. Not only Old Testament prophecies, but the way Jesus lived his life. He lived a sinless life, always spoke the truth, and through many miracles, proved that he is everything that he claimed to be. His sinlessness, have you ever thought about that? Many of the people we admire and almost worship, it's not called pop idol for nothing. We see very, very clearly the weaknesses, the frailties. I, I, I think of Michael Jackson. Never was a, a, a pop star more idolized than Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, let's just put on this side, I'm not criticizing, I'm, I, I would understand why people are tempted to go in that direction. Extraordinary talent. I remember first watching Michael Jackson on one of his early DVDs, the one that, that shook everybody up a long, long time ago. And I just wasn't even listening to the singing, I was listening to watching the dancing. I want to tell you, as a former professional dancer, that man could dance, I can tell you. Nobody in the Royal Ballet could move like he moved. Great, great, great dancer, great talent, great creativity. But he was put on such a pedestal, almost, almost, and indeed worshipped. When, when he tragically died, people were devastated and heartbroken. The idol of their life was gone. They couldn't accept it. Some to this day don't accept it, say, Michael is still alive, he didn't die. They couldn't, just couldn't accept it. But when we look at his life, we'll describe him by many things, but we would not describe him as a flawless individual. That our heart goes out to a man who was destroyed by his own flaws and weaknesses, and, and there, but by the grace of God, go we all. So when you admire and adore someone and something that is so full of flaws, why will you not question it? But when it comes to Jesus, there is no fault in him. Not even his enemies could find fault. And the things they accused him of, such as blasphemy, well, if he is God, it was not blasphemy, it's true. One occasion, Jesus is responding to all this opposition, and he says this in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Do you get this? Jesus is sinless, therefore his words are true and flawless. This is what's important. If we understand that Jesus is sinless, that in itself would not prove he was God. We could conceivably imagine somebody on this planet being sinless. I mean, it's pretty difficult and almost impossible, but let's, let, let's, let's just con concede to that. However, when somebody who is sinless says, before Abraham was, I am, his sinlessness points in the direction of the truthfulness of what he has to say. We spoke about pop idols. We could look at the feet of clay of, of uh, most amazing, successful business people, some indeed even who run for president, and we might say, ay, 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 there's a problem here. The weaknesses of the flesh. Great sporting personalities. Weaknesses of the flesh. 
And we know that they're just flesh like us and why are we tempted to worship them? But however, when we go to religious leaders, even the founders of great world religions, not one of them ever, ever claimed to be, nor indeed could prove that they themselves were sinless. Jesus is in a category of his own. Amen and amen. amen. So his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, his sinlessness and miracles that he did demonstrated. Jesus knew this, and then he was very clear about it in John 10, verses 37 to 38. Jesus says basically this, I know you're struggling to believe what I say, but look at what I do. Now let's pause there because it's a great help to us. When we're wanting to share the truth of the gospel with others, it is not only what we say. It's what we do. In fact, what we say can be undermined, undermined by what we do. Jesus argues in the same kind of way, John 10, 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Wow. He's laying his whole reputation on the line. If what I do are not the works of the Father, don't believe me. Verse 38. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, in other words, believe what I say, then believe the works, believe what I do, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. Clearly claiming that his mighty works were the works of the Father and the degree to which that was evident shows there is a unique relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and the two are not in competition, but there they are operating and working together. Now, the final proof is the resurrection. Now, of course, the fact that Jesus was raised again from the dead demonstrates that he is God the Son. Paul made that clear, Romans 1 verse 4. He says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. It's clear that Paul understands Son of God to be God because he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. But actually, the argument is stronger than just the resurrection happened because Jesus predicted his own resurrection and he accomplished it. It didn't just happen to him. He accomplished it. In fact, he accomplished both his death and his resurrection and that's going to help a lot of people who in many sophisticated ways with all the different variety of religious beliefs ask the question you and I probably asked when we were kids, why is Good Friday good? Something terrible happened and we call it Good Friday. Well, it wasn't that this happened to Jesus as if he was a victim outside of his own control. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I take it up again. Let's read that particular passage itself. John 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Here it is. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. When Jesus died on the cross, he dismissed his spirit. He was in control. He wasn't merely a victim. He was in charge. This was the death that he should accomplish 
Because it was no ordinary death, it was a substitutionary death. Jesus took the suffering that was due us upon himself that we might enjoy the blessing of God that was due to him. Oh yes, he, go ahead, give him praise. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That is so significant because it wasn't just that God raised Jesus from the dead. God presumably could choose to do that to anybody. And all of us one day will be raised again from the dead. It doesn't make us God. But when Jesus says, I lay my life down by my own authority, by my own authority I take it up again, this demonstrates that not just that he was raised from the dead, but that he is the resurrection and the life. Remember he said, if you believe my words, you will not die. He's, he's saying he has the very life of God. He he shares the life of God and therefore can impart the life of God. He is that eternal being who needs no one to cause him to be and no one can cease, cause him to cease to be. The very one who is life, being itself. And that's why when we know Jesus, we are guaranteed a glorious resurrection. John eleven twenty five to 26 this is at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus says to his sister, I am, divine name again, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a very, very important question. I've got a series of questions which um, I am going to opt out of and make it clear that I didn't invent these questions. And I'm just using somebody else's list, and I'm doing this so that you won't be mad at me today. All right. You know, um, Bob Dylan, who very recently was given the Nobel Prize for Literature, and that referred to his lyrics of his songs. There's a worldwide furore. How can a pop singer, a singer-songwriter, win the prize of literature? We'll ask Dwayne that question, as well as others who are writing songs on our new CD where there are going to be songs written by eight, eight or so of our team members. But during Bob Dylan's evangelical period, remember that? He produced a gospel album called Slow Train Coming. And we were rejoicing Bob Dylan become an evangelical. He moved on to other things after that. But anyway, right at that time in his gospel phase, he wrote a song which was very powerful. The words in the middle of that song says, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Interesting. Showing not only that we are created for worship and crave uh, worship, in other words, crave to, not to be worshipped so much as to worship, showing that each and every one of us, we are going to be owned by something. What are you owned by today? In other words, what ranks first or most important in your life? Here's the list. Don't get mad at me. Is it your work? Is it your ministry? Confession, I threw that one in. Is it your family? Is it your car? Or is it your dog? Is it your house? Is it your cell phone? 
Well, there's something in your life that ranks as most important. What is it? What is it? The 1980s, we're talking about them earlier. They were the power broker's years. Well, it might be money that we're worshipping. But there's always something that has first place in our life. And unless that is Jesus Christ, get ready for it. It's going to hurt. You are an idolater. So we've got to get rid of idolatry and realize of a reality when we rediscover Jesus and underline the fact that we've believed for a long time and know to be true that Jesus is God. It's going to do many things for us. One thing in particular, I've chosen two things actually, two things in particular, we are never going to doubt that it is right to worship him. We're going to make Jesus the center of our devotion. Not just in our verbal praise, but in the way we live. We're going to be absolutely crazy about him and do everything we can to ensure that he has that high spot. Nobody else detracts from him in our life. Can I have a strong amen in the house of God? He is the person to whom we, we direct our deepest longings, knowing that he is the only one who can satisfy them. And he is the person to whom we submit our deepest aspirations. When we worship Jesus, we are coming home to who we really are. Let worship rise to the surface of your life. Make it the heart of everything you do, but make sure it's Jesus at the center. If he is God, it's not just a mistake to work. It's not... not It's not just not a mistake to worship him. It is absolutely right, and we are not fully human until we do. The second thing is, if he is God, tremble at his words. I don't mean to breed a kind of condemnation, but it's so easy, uh, Christians, so easily just flick over and say, well, that's just Jesus. Well, that's what he said. That's his point of view. The television says something else. No, we take our authority from the one who holds absolute authority. So when Jesus speaks, it is God speaking, and we don't mess with it. I know it's, it's easier said than done, but I'd rather you get before God and say, I don't agree with that, and have it out with him. Don't come and have it out with me. Have it out with him, because he will win when you recognize that he is who he is. But how wonderful and how glorious to understand that the God who we worship, his name is Jesus Understand that that is not just a Christian tradition, one option amongst many options. Either Jesus is everything he claimed to be, or he is nothing. Worse than that, actually. I'm going to finish with this quotation from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia Chronicles, and we've probably come to be introduced to him through some of his his, uh, novels and stories. But C.S. Lewis was a great professor of literature and probably one of the finest Christian apologists of the 20th century. And he wrote a definitive book called Mere Christianity. In other words, the Bible basics or the basic ideas of Christianity. Get that book, read it, and pass it on. It's a very, very helpful book. And one particular point, he was in his book saying, are all these people who say, yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus is a great prophet, but he's, I don't believe he's God. I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher, a great religious leader, a great thinker, and a great humanitarian. I believe all of that, and I like him for that, but he is not God. C.S. Lewis almost loses patience with that point of view. Listen to this quote. 
I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, such as, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not do. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. Very strong language. What he's basically saying is you can't take Jesus and put him in the category of the rest of us, even a great teacher, a great leader, a great moral person. No, no, no. If he is what he claims to be, then he is neither mad nor bad, but he is God. 